So 1 John 4, 7 through 12. And this morning we're answering the question, where does love come from? Where does love come from? So the, the, the basic idea that John is wanting to get across today in what he says to us is that God's love leads to our love. We've seen in the first three chapters of John, especially the idea that what you believe about Jesus matters. What you believe about Jesus matters. And then John has given us a number of tests of assurance so that we can know that we belong to the family of God. Last week, as we looked at the first six verses of chapter 4, we saw that there's a battle of truth versus error. We also saw that we have a Christian duty to discern the truth. And we saw that there's a winner in the battle of truth versus error, and that gives us hope for the future. Today, as we look at 1 John 4, 7 through 12, there's three basic ideas that we're going to see as we read it. And here's what those three ideas are. Number one, God is love. God is love. Number two, God loves us. And number three, God's love is perfected in us. And as we go through those, we're going to spend the majority of our time on the first two. Each of those first two will also have kind of three main ideas underneath them. And then the last one just stands on its own. It's really kind of the conclusion that John is leading to in these verses. So let's take a look at 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, the first thing, first main idea that we see in those verses, as we said, is simply that God is love. And this is verses 7 and 8. And as we've just read, what we see there is John saying, God is love. That means that the nature of God is love. Okay, God's nature is love. And we have to kind of be careful when we say this because people get a little confused about it. Some people think, well, that means there's like an equal sign between God and love. God is love and love is God. And that's not right. God is more than just love. I want you to think for just a minute of what it would mean if we, that was true, if God was just love. What would that do to the cross? Well, it would mean that God is not wrath, and so the cross was just love. It was just a demonstration of love, and it reduces the crucifixion of Jesus to being just an example of love and not being God's wrath against sin. Did Jesus take our place? Was he taking God's wrath against sin for us? Or was it just an example that we're supposed to follow of how to live sacrificially? Well, we are supposed to live and love sacrificially, but the cross is a whole lot more than that because love is not God. God is love. And God is a whole lot more than just love. He's also 
wrath and he's holiness and he's mercy and he's justice and all of those things as well. But God, John's point here is to say that God is love because he's telling us something about the nature of, uh, of God and how he communicates that love to us and what that's going to mean in our lives then. Where does love come from? He's, he's leading to telling us that we're supposed to love each other. But to start that, he has to tell us that the nature of God is such that God is love. Let me just put it out in kind of a logical format for you. You can think through the statements this way. First of all, God's nature is that he is love. Second, God's nature does not change. And if you think about that for a minute, what you'll realize is, therefore, God was love before creation. Now, for us, when we think about love, we think, well, there's an object. There's, there's some thing or someone that we are loving, and that's true of God, too. So what does that mean if God was love before creation, before there was any thing or anyone other than God? Well, it means that God loved himself. And it's unique when we talk about God because God is three persons. And so there is what we call intra-Trinitarian love. In other words, the three persons of the Godhead have love between them. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit is, in some sense, the expression of that love between them. And there was this perfect, self-fulfilled love that existed in God before he ever created anything. Let me give you just a few verses to think about. And this is from the same author, from John, but it's from his gospel. And this is John 17. This is part of Jesus' what we call his high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples before he leaves. And in verse 23, we read this. Jesus is praying and he says that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There's a whole lot in that verse right there. Just think about what that means. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and in doing that, he's praying that the world will know that the Father sent him and loved them, loved the disciples, loved God's people, even as the Father loved Jesus. So the Father's love for Jesus is what leads Jesus to go to the cross. The Father's love for Jesus overflows then into Jesus' love for us. A few verses later, we read this. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here, Jesus is saying he wants the love that the Father has loved Jesus with to now be in the disciples as they love each other. And somehow this all is connected to the cross and what Jesus came to do. And that will become more clear as we continue. But the point is that there is this eternal love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit the Father loves the Son, and the Father's love for us is an overflow of that love. The Father loves us because he loves the Son. 
The Son loves the Father, and the Son's love for us is an overflow of his love for the Father. The Son loves us because he loves the Father. And so you get the idea that in being brought into the family of God, we have actually been brought into the intra-Trinitarian love that is there in the Godhead. So the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we've been brought into that because we're now part of the family. The next idea here under this idea that God is love is that God redemptively loves His people. God redemptively loves His people. So a lot of times we ask the question, well, does God love everyone? And the simple answer to that is yes, God does love everyone. If you think in terms of maybe something that you've created, some project that you've done, something that you've made, and you have an attachment to it, some emotional investment in it, on a much greater scale, God loves his creation. He's created real people that he can interact with, and God loves his entire creation. But it's also true that every person that God loves in this way has rejected God and walked away from him. And so God, the Bible tells us, has chosen to set his love on certain individuals in a special saving way that he does not do for others. That's hard for us to understand. Let me just take you to one Bible passage that lays this out for us, and it actually helps us with what John is saying too. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that choosing, that's called, the term for that is election. God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God has predestined us to be part of his family, to be adopted. And why did he do that? Well, there's two different complementary answers in this passage. The first is, he did it in love. He chose to set his love on us in such a way that he predestined us for adoption as sons. So he lovingly destined us to be part of his family. And it was simply according to the purpose of his will. He chose to do it that way. It wasn't that he looked at any of us and said, there's something in that person that I want in my family. It was simply according to the purpose of his will that he chose to set his love on us. An analogy could be, and this is very limited, but in the way that I love all kids in our church, but I love my kids in a special way. They're mine. They're part of my family. And in Christian circles, sometimes this is a controversial idea that God's love works in this way, but it's really only controversial when people don't accept what the Bible says. The Bible's clear about it. God loves his entire creation. So, for instance, in Matthew 5, 
He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's goodness, his loving goodness overflows toward all of his creation. And yet, God has brought certain individuals into his family because he chose to set his love on them in a special way. So God's nature is love. God redemptively loves his people. And those who love are born of God. What does it mean to be born of God? And for this, I'm going to go again to the letter of John. Excuse me, not to the letter. We're in the letter. To the gospel of John. Because I think some things that are said there help to kind of shed light on what John is saying here in this letter. So John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John writes this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here you have this connection of those who receive, those who believe, become children of God, and the language that God, well, that John uses, that Jesus uses for this, is being born of God. Being born of God. Now he gets a little more clear about it, kind of goes into more detail, in John chapter 3. So turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. This is the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. And if you remember who Nicodemus is, he's a Pharisee. So he's a religious leader. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were opposed to Jesus. Now this is early on in Jesus' ministry, and so they're probably still kind of trying to figure out a little bit of who Jesus is. But Nicodemus knows enough that the Pharisees are opposed to Jesus, and so he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus, and yet he has some honest questions. Nicodemus is seeking. Now, you've got to understand, this is a man who has all kinds of Bible knowledge. He, he is steeped in the Old Testament and in the Jewish law. He's a teacher of the law, and yet... He has seen things in Jesus that make him wonder what he's got wrong, what Nicodemus has gotten wrong. There are things that Jesus is doing and saying that he doesn't understand. And so he comes to Jesus, but he comes at night. He can't be seen with Jesus. But he's got honest questions. And honestly, this story, John chapter 3, is left unresolved because we don't know what happens to Nicodemus at this point in the story. Now, there are hints later on that he truly does become a follower of Jesus. But at this point, he's still trying to seek out answers. So John chapter 3, and let's look at verses 1 through 8. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here we have being born again equated with seeing the kingdom of God. Now, just background information that's helpful to understand. The Jewish people, by and large, at this point in time, are waiting for the Messiah to come to get rid of the Roman tyranny that they're living under. 
They believe the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a king and he's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to defeat the Romans and the Jewish kingdom will be established. And Jesus is saying, you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom. Yes, I'm here to bring a kingdom, but it's not the kind of kingdom you're thinking about. This is a kind of kingdom that you can't see unless you're born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the idea here is, Jesus is saying, you have to be born of the Spirit. So being born again is being born of the Spirit, or as John said in chapter 1, being born of God. The Spirit is God. And this is, Jesus is contrasting, being born of the flesh, the way that all humanity has already been born here, flesh and blood, and being born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God doing something to bring you to new life spiritually. And Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom or to have salvation, you have to be born spiritually. Now, he goes on. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So here in these verses you see there's a connection between being born again or born of God and knowing or understanding. And believing. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So here, Jesus says there's a connection between what you know and understand and believe about Jesus, the Son of Man, and being born again or born of the Spirit. What you believe about Jesus is vitally connected to being born again. And the story that Jesus kind of picks up on here from the Old Testament is the story of when in the, in the wilderness, the Israelites had been bitten by snakes and they were dying. And God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and everyone who looks to the serpent will be healed. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, look, you think the problem is Roman tyranny. The problem is you've been bitten by the serpent, the devil. The problem is sin. 
That's what I'm here to do something about. And just like that bronze serpent was lifted up and all who looked to the serpent were healed, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a pole and everyone who looks to him and believes will be healed and will be born again and brought into the family of God. That's what it means to see the kingdom. There's this connection between being born again and knowing God, believing Jesus and eternal life tied up in these verses. So God is love. And secondly, our second main point then is that God loves us. Actually, let me read these verses for you. This is verses 9 through 11 back in 1 John 4. God loves us. Let me just read these verses again. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love God one another. There's three things I want you to see from these verses summed up under that idea that God loves us. The first is this, the redemptive order of God's love. The redemptive order of God's love. Now, in theology uh, studies, the fancy term for this is the ordo salutis, which just means the order of salvation. And this is something theologians have discussed and written about quite a bit because there's an order to what God does in saving us, in bringing us into his family. So I'm going to show you an illustration. This is from visual theology. I know you probably can't see a lot of it. I'm going to zoom in a little bit. So this is an, an illustration of the Ordo Salutis. Okay, so there's the title, and that's Latin for the order of salvation. And the point of this is it's not going to tell you a chronological order. It's a logical order. Because some of these things all happen like at once. It's not like the first thing that happens is this, and then after a period of time, this happens. And This is the logical order. This is how God unfolds this for us in Scripture. So as you look at the overall picture, the section in the bottom, in green, that's what happens to bring us into the family of God. So let's zoom in on that. It starts at the bottom with election. This is God choosing us, predestining us for adoption. Then the second thing is calling. That's when the message of the gospel is given, whether that's being proclaimed in a sermon or somebody finds it in a Gideon Bible in a hotel and reads it, or you share it with your neighbor or whatever it is. It's the calling. It's the, the gospel proclamation, and the person is called. Then is regeneration. Regeneration is New life, new birth, being born again. This is when God acts on a person to bring them to new spiritual life. They've been called to respond to the gospel, but you can't respond to the gospel if you're spiritually dead. So God brings us to life. And when he does that, when he brings us to life, when we are born again, when he opens our eyes and we gain spiritual understanding, then is conversion. We respond to the gospel. We do a 180. We turn away from our sin and we turn towards God. 
And when this happens, God declares us righteous because we have looked to Jesus in faith. So God declares us righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done, not what we have done. That's justification. And once we are declared righteous, then God can bring us into his family. We are fitting to be in his family at that point. That's adoption. And all of this happens to bring us into the family of God. After this then, the, the next section is kind of what happens during our Christian life. Sanctification, this is what we've been studying, just begun studying with the youth group. This is the process of becoming more like God, becoming more holy. It's a growing up and down process through the remainder of our lives. Perseverance means that God will complete what he started that all those whom he justifies, he will bring finally to glorification. And glorification is that moment when this life is over and we are in the presence of God. Like we heard in the kids video this morning, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That's glorification. This is the order, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Now, why do I highlight that for you this morning? Well, because John has a point that he wants to tell us in order for us to understand how to love one another. He says, if you're truly going to love one another, you've got to understand that the reason this happens is not because we loved God, but that he loved us. God's love comes first. So the redemptive order of God's love is important. God's love precedes our love. God's love produces faith in us. God's love produces love in us. God's love produces our knowing God. That's the new birth of John chapter 3 that Jesus talked about with Nicodemus. To have saving faith in God is to know God personally, and we can't know God without faith, and the faith is produced by his love. And we've got to understand that if we're going to learn to love the way John is telling us. See, there's nothing in us that God looks at and sees something about us or something that we've done that prompts him to love us. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Imagine your most bitter enemy and giving your life for that person. Now, I want to take us to a passage that kind of ties a lot of these ideas together. So this is back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. If you turn there, you can follow along as I read, or you can just listen as I do that, but it might be helpful for you to see it. John 15, verses 9 through 17. This comes in the middle of the passage where Jesus is talking about how he is the vine and we are the branches. So this is um, this final discourse, this final teaching that he's giving his disciples before he leaves, before he goes to the cross. So John 15, verses 9 through 17. Here's what it says. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
abide or remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is saying that obeying his word is evidence of love. Just like Jesus says that he has obeyed his Father because he loves the Father. So if we love Jesus, we will do what Jesus did. Jesus loved the Father and obeyed him. If we love Jesus, we'll obey his words. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, at first glance, we read over that, this distinction between servants and friends, and we think that it has to do with obedience. It doesn't have to do with obedience. Both obey, the servant and the friend. What's the difference according to what Jesus says? He says, I've called, he says, the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The difference between being a friend or a servant is a difference of what you know. Both the servant and the friend do what they're asked to do. But the servant does it because he's a servant and he has to. The friend does it because the master explains why and gives him insight and says, I'm explaining to you what I'm doing and why I'm asking you to do this. And out of love for me then, the friend responds in obedience. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, I'm revealing to you the truth of all of this. So you're my friends. So when you obey, you're doing it out of love. Then verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus says, look, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And and the, the order is important because he's saying, God loved me. I love you. You love each other. And the love of the Father is what flows through all of that. So we have to understand the love of the Father and how that comes out in the love of the Son if we're going to know how to love one another. So first comes the Father's love for Jesus, then Jesus loves us, his followers. We are called to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And that love is demonstrated in Jesus laying down his life for us. The difference between servants and friends is not obedience, it's knowledge. And that knowledge comes from the Father to Jesus 
and then to us through the Holy Spirit, we didn't choose Jesus, he chose us. And all of that ties together those ideas of what John is getting at in 1 John 4 when he emphasizes the redemptive order of God's love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The second thing under this idea that God loves us is the sacrificial extent of God's love. Think about what Jesus sacrificed. Our, our verses here in 1 John 4 say that he's a propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside the wrath of the God. So the God doesn't have his wrath on the person who committed the offense. His wrath is exercised on the sacrifice. That idea is picked up in our Bible to explain what Jesus is doing. Jesus steps in between God and us. God's wrath rightly rests on us for our sin. Jesus turns aside God's wrath away from us and onto himself. Think about what Jesus sacrificed in leaving heaven, the incarnation. He went through temptation. He went through opposition. He was reviled. He was crucified. And all of that sacrificial love he did because he's obeying the Father, because he loves the Father, and because he loves us. John 14, 31, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And think about what God the Father sacrificed, his only Son. Now that phrase, we have it in 1 John 4 and verse 9, that phrase is found nine times in the New Testament. Not always about Jesus, but in each case, it's signaling the great loss of the parent, which is so great because there's only one son or only one child. Let me give you some examples. Luke chapter 7. There's a widow who has uh, one son and the son dies. And here's what we read in verse 12, Luke 7. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. It's emphasizing the fact that this is her only son to show how much she has lost. The next chapter, Luke 8. A man named Jairus has a daughter who has died. There came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. Luke chapter 9, there's a demon-possessed boy. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. In each of these cases, it's the fact that there's only one child that's emphasizing the great loss of the parent. Same thing is true with Abraham and Isaac there. So when we come to John 3 and we read about this, it's emphasizing for us the great loss experienced by God the Father. We read John 3 
verses 1 through 15, Jesus and Nicodemus, let's pick up where we left off now, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only son. Depending on your translation, you might have his only begotten son or his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. John's emphasizing the great sacrifice the Father is making in order to redeem his people and the correspondingly great tragedy of not believing in this only Son. And in 1 John 4 verse 9, John's emphasizing the same thing again. Now those two things, the redemptive order of God's love and the sacrificial extent of God's love are leading us to the motivating power of God's love. This is what John is leading to. This is where he's aiming. He's telling us that the doctrine of the atonement, what Jesus has done on the cross, is the foundation for how we are to live in Christ. God's love to us is our motivation for how we are to love each other. John Stott says it this way, no one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. So every failure to love comes from a failure to understand the cross. I can tell you I failed to love this week. Why did that happen? Because I lost sight of the cross. If I had my mind on the sacrifice that God has made in sending Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made in laying down his life for me, then I would respond differently. I would love well if my eyes were set on that. And that's what it means when we talk about living in light of the gospel or a gospel-centered life. It's that the heart of this message that the Bible is giving us about Jesus and his death on the cross is the thing that motivates us to live as we're called to live. John's point here is that we're to love one another. But the reason he reaches that conclusion is that God has loved his son and God has loved us through his son and the son has loved us. And that in response then, we love. So the last main point, and this is very brief, is simply that God's love is perfected in us. This is 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's John saying? Well, John has said God is love. Now he's saying God is a spirit. Nobody's ever seen God. 
But God is made visible when we love the way that he's loved us. See, in the incarnation, God took on flesh. So when we see Jesus, in Jesus we see the glory of God. In Jesus we see God's love in action at the cross. And we are called to love one another as Christ has loved us. So God's love is made visible when we do that. God's love is perfected, completed, made known in us when we love with the same kind of love that he loved us. Paul says it this way when he writes to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians 3. He says, you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You are communication from God when you love the way that God loves. You're communicating God to those around you. When the cross is the foundation of Christian living, people see God in us. And so, God is love, God loves us, and God's love is perfected in us. Now you may say, well, if John's main point is that we're supposed to love one another, why did we spend 90% of the sermon on God's love for us? Why didn't he just talk about how we're supposed to love one another? John's answer to that would be, that is how you're supposed to love one another. That's the motivating power. You can't love each other the way that you're called to do so if you don't understand God's love for you. See, we've been brought into this love between the Father and the Son. And, and the Father's love overflows into us and into our love. And the, the love of the Son overflows into us and our love. And it's, it shows us what that love looks like. It shows us the sacrificial extent of that love. It provides the motivation. And so John says, I want you to love each other. And in order to make that happen, I'm going to tell you about God's love. And so when we fail to love, what do we need to do? We need to look at the cross. Both for our forgiveness and also for how we are to love. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that as we've considered your love this morning, that this would sink in, the extent to which you went to show your love to us. I pray that your love would be both the model and the motivation for us as we love each other. That we would respond to your love by loving you and by loving each other. That we would realize, as a church, we've said our purpose is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus says this is what it means to follow him. It means loving like he did. And we obey his commandments because we're his friends and his command is that we should love one another. And he's told us how to do it and he's showed us how to do it and he's provided the model and the motivation. And I pray that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to love you and to love others. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.